You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. All Are Wrong Todays, Chapter 1. So, the thing is, I come from the world we were supposed to have. That means nothing to you, obviously, because you live here, in the crappy world we do have. But it never should have turned out like this. And it's all my fault. Well, me, and to a lesser extent my father, and, yeah, I guess a little bit Penelope. It's hard to know how to start telling this story, but... Okay, you know the future that people in the 1950s imagined we'd have? Flying cars, robot maids, food pills, teleportation, jetpacks, moving sidewalks, ray guns, hoverboards, space vacations, and moon bases. All that dazzling, transformative technology our grandparents were certain was right around the corner. The stuff of world's fairs and pulp science fiction magazines with titles like Fantastic Future Tales and The Amazing World of Tomorrow. Can you picture it? Well, it happened. It all happened, more or less exactly as envisioned. I'm not talking about the future. I'm talking about the present. Today, in the year 2016, humanity lives in a techno-utopian paradise of abundance, purpose, and wonder. Except we don't. Of course we don't. We live in a world where, sure, there are iPhones and 3D printers and, I don't know, drone strikes or whatever, but it hardly looks like the Jetsons. Except it should, and it did, until it didn't. But it would have if I hadn't done what I did, or, no, hold on, what I will have done. I'm sorry, despite receiving the best education available to a citizen of the world of tomorrow, the grammar of the situation is a bit complicated. Elon Mostai lives in Toronto with his wife and children. He writes movies. His first novel is All Are Wrong Today's. Thank you for joining me, Elon. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Rick. We like to uh, look at unreliable narrators. We love unreliable narrators. What you introduced us to in All Around Today's, a science fiction novel, is an undecided narrator. He yeah. can't figure out how to even write his book or even how to tell his story. And narration is actually really a key concept in this book. Yeah, I mean, I... In addition to being a screenwriter writing my first novel, I wanted to write a character who is struggling with how to tell his story and an unfamiliarity with the medium of the book. He comes from an alternate version of the world, uh, a version of the present day where human society took a very different turn in the mid-60s. Um, so for him, books aren't even really a thing where he comes from. So he's he's approaching a way of telling his story that's very unfamiliar. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that because it got it was a chance for me to write a book that's sort of aware of itself as a book, but also trying to figure out um, the strengths and weaknesses of the medium as the narrator is, is working his way through his story. So it was, it was a way to hopefully have some fun, but also um, speak to the perspective of the narrator in, in a very direct way. Well, it's really brilliant. Now, I think that for me, one of the things I loved about this book was that it surprised the heck out of me. The The basic premise that I guess the high concept, you write movies, so high concept is perhaps <laughs> applicable, I thought was so brilliant. I, I could have gone with just that, but it took me all sorts of places I didn't expect. But give us this kind of high concept, which you describe a bit in your in, in the opening chapter. 
Yeah, well, my protagonist comes from, the, you know, it's set in the present, but it's the 2016 that people in the 1950s and 60s thought we were going to have, uh, this kind of techno-utopian futuristic um, paradise. But through a series of circumstances involving a stolen prototype time machine and an experiment that goes horribly awry back in 1965, uh, my protagonist finds himself stranded in our version of 2016, the real world, or what we think of as the real world, but which to him seems like this dystopia where everything has gone horribly wrong. So of course he's trying to find his way back to his version of the world, the way the world is supposed to be. But along the way he, you know, he discovers these very unexpected versions of the people in his life, his family, this woman he has this complicated romantic connection with, and even himself. He's a very different person in this world, and it forces him to kind of make you know question and ask a lot of um, uh, of himself in terms of how he defines happiness, what gives his life meaning and purpose, what kind of future he even wants to live in. And uh, and so it was a chance to kind of um, have a lot of fun with stuff like time travel and alternate realities, but also, you know, ask some sort of moral and philosophical questions about what kind of life we're living. Absolutely. One of the, there are a many, many really interesting concepts. One of the concepts, uh, it comes from a philosopher whose name, French philosopher, whose name V, it's down there at the bottom of my notes. It's Paul, uh, Paul Virilio. Paul Virilio. And in, yeah. in, at the beginning, you talk about uh, Lionel Dotrider, the inventor of this miracle machine, what he calls the accident. When you invent yeah. a new technology, you also invent the accident of that technology. Take that out for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm fascinated by both intention and the unintended consequences of things, particularly uh, technology. And so that idea that uh, there's no such thing as a car crash until you invent the car. When you invent the plane, you also invent the plane crash. When you invent the nuclear power plant, you invent the nuclear meltdown. And um, that idea of the unintended consequences of technology is something that really fascinates me. And so I, I like the idea of this scientist who invents this um, device which can create unlimited clean energy and which has this transformative effect on human society, but also really deliberating the unintended consequences of his invention. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of the internet lately. You know, it's this incredible. Um, resource where all of human you know knowledge seems to be available at the click of the button, but the unintended consequences it makes all information equal. You know, fact and uh, fiction uh, become conflated, and you know, choosing which reality you want to live in becomes like subjective. Um, and so that idea that despite whatever the intentions of of the internet as this incredible informational resource, it's also had the unintended consequence of um, of flattening out our sense of what's real and what's not. That kind of stuff interests me a lot. And so, although the book is about a lot of things, one of the things it's about is the unintended consequences of technology on on us, on individuals, and on the kind of, on the ties that bind us. Uh, I thought that was such a, a fascinating concept. Now, you also there are so many great science fiction nuggets in here. Uh, I could spend we could spend hours talking about them but one of the my favorites is this idea of the Gottreiter engine and this comes from a, a a kind of fallacy of all the things we've seen about teleportation and even i was thinking um life after death too when you die if for example your soul leaves your body what's going to keep it stuck to the earth yeah exactly um yeah i uh you know, the idea that 
although we feel like we're sitting still, you know, I'm sitting here in an armchair in my office and I, you know, I assume you're doing something similar. Um, but we're actually hurtling through space at almost unimaginable speeds. You know, the Earth spins at up to a thousand miles an hour on its axis while it goes around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. And the sun itself is moving through the galaxy at like something crazy, like a million and 1,300,000 miles an hour. So we're actually, although we feel like we're still um, moving incredibly quickly all the time, and that image of us, every person in the world is almost like, um, you know, like barnacles on the side of a humpback whale. Uh, we feel like we're still, but the whale is always moving through the ocean. And so that idea um, sort of spins out in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that, I, you know, even the sense of something like what would happen to a human soul if it left the body? What? Why would gravity... Well, why would gravity have any effect on it? You know, you can almost imagine, you know, the Earth spinning around and like a comet leaving a trail of departed souls behind it as they <laughs> hurtle through space. Um, it's a very striking and slightly uh, eerie image. Um, maybe our idea of hell is because uh, some souls get sucked into the sun and our idea of heaven is others get sucked out into the vast nebulae of the galaxy and the, the ones that... that you know, escape the gravity well of the sun. We think of them as going to heaven and the ones that don't go to hell. Maybe, um, you know, maybe um, good and evil and moral decisions have nothing to do with it. Maybe it's just a function of gravity. <laughs> I didn't mean to dismantle all of world religion in that, in that uh, comment there. But um, no, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. You know, the limits of human perception and the mm -hmm. effects of um, just sort of like immutable physics on our lives is just something that interests me. I mean, again, like I don't, I, I, I love exploring these sort of scientific uh, concepts. At the same time, for me, it's always about people. Um, the idea of how uh, to build a time machine is very interesting to me, but more interesting than that is how it would be used. Inevitably, people, once you sort of go beyond the abstraction of like humanity as a species, um, people tend to make their decisions based on pretty simple things, you know, um, the emotions that guide them, the ties that bind them to usually just a small number of people. And so I, I like kind of taking the big, big ideas about technology, but also really marrying it to a very personal story about a character, Tom, who loses his mother early in the book. That's not really a spoiler. It happens very early on. Uh, has a, you know, loses his mother, has a very complicated relationship with his father, ends up in this even more complicated romantic uh, scenario with a woman. And the consequences of all those things propel him into this, uh, a series of terrible decisions which have consequences not just for him, but for basically the entire world. Um, now, most of us, when we make bad decisions because of grief or heartbreak or frustration, um, don't end up shattering the space-time continuum, but that's why it's a novel. <laughs> I, I'm glad it is. You know, one of the things that uh, I found most fascinating uh, about Tom as a character was his constant um, immersion in this uh, his in himself as a narrator. And you, I, I love this idea because I think humans really. We only exist by virtue of the stories we tell ourselves. That's how we would define ourselves. We are the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. That's right, yeah. So uh, I love all the spins on narrative that you put in here. That, I think, is such a fascinating um, place to go and not a place that science fiction goes very often. Yeah, I know I'm marrying certain, like, 
really classic tropes of the genre, like time travel and um, futuristic visions of the you know of of our world and alternate realities. But I, I tried to ground it both in very relatable human behavior. You know, every everything that people go through in this book is something that people just go through in the real world in their everyday lives. Most of the things that I've gone through in my own personal life. But then also, yeah, I like to think about the form that I'm working in. And so it is a book written as a memoir by a very self-conscious narrator who um, is uh, grappling with what a book is, what it can do, maybe what it should and shouldn't do. And I like, you know, I mean, I think I'm an avid reader and I like books that are aware of themselves as a book. You can go too far and I don't, I never wanted to go like too far into like the metatextual um, analysis because this isn't, you know, it's not a a master's paper on on the uses of narrative. It's a novel and hopefully a very entertaining one at that. At the same time, like I I like um, part of the fun of a not entirely dependable narrator is that somebody wrote this book, you know, and that's the idea. It's a memoir. And so somebody wrote it and they wrote it and they had a perspective. They had the things they wanted to say. They had things they wanted to confess. They had, and they have blind spots and little sort of areas of their psychology where maybe they don't notice things that the reader does. And that's part of the fun. Um, and so being a bit self-conscious about the process of it being written um, is hope, hopefully adds an added layer of pleasure for the reader. Because um, you don't want to pull people out of the story. So I tried to be careful with that stuff um, because you wanted to enhance the experience, not detract from it. The um, one of the, the setup for this book is so interesting for me because what you have are, is somebody from a utopia who arrives in our world and perceives it as a dystopia. Yeah. Um, I noticed a lot, as I'm sure most, many people have, you know, dystopian literature, pop culture, it's everywhere these days, you know, but I imagine somebody from, for example, my grandparents' generation, um, taking a look around at the 2016, 2017 we live in and saying like, what happened? We were supposed to solve all the stuff, all these problems that we were grappling with in the, you know, post-World War II, technology solved some of them, but it seems like it's caused as much trouble as it, as it, as it has resolved. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is fascinating when you start grappling with technology is it's still just a tool. And so it's a reflection of who is wielding it. Um, and so the idea that our world could be perceived as the dystopia, which I mean, admittedly is very influenced by uh, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, it's the kind of observation uh, he would, probably have made. And he's somebody that whose work influenced me a lot. I, I read him when I was young and his narrative voice and storytelling style really stuck with me. And so um, there is, um, you know, obviously an homage to Vonnegut early on in the book. You um, mentioned one of but, my favorite books by him, Cat's Cradle. I, I read yeah, it about I, the same age, I guess you did. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that was a book that, um, you know, when I read had a big impact on me. And it's funny because I started writing this book and um, you know, the book has very short chapters and I was enjoying the aesthetic of that, um, and what I could do in terms of like pacing the story and, um, telling the story in a certain way using the short chapters. But I realized about six or seven chapters in, I'm like, oh, this is exactly like Cat's Cradle. Uh, I hadn't meant to, 
uh, be borrowing its structure, but I, I had. And so I went back and reread Cat's Cradle and realized not only had I sort of borrowed some of the structural devices, but a lot of the themes of that book were echoed quite powerfully in my book. And so I figured, well, I didn't mean to be ripping off Cat's Cradle, but if I'm going to do it, I might as well acknowledge it up front. And since that book was written in 1963, I feel enough has happened in the past sort of 50 you know, four years that um, it's okay to take another look at some of these themes and uh, see what's changed and what hasn't about human nature. I, human is really important in this book because, as you say, at its core, this is a a family story of relations between a father and a son, a mother, um, nice romance, the romance and, and the, the family aspects are, are really sweet. I think you do a great job, even though you're talking about this a horrible dystopian world that we actually alas live in. And I remember one of my favorite uh, uh, interviews from many years ago is when I spoke with Kim Stanley Robinson and we were talking about his global warming trilogy. And I said, you know, right. this is a nice, really nice dystopic kind of a dystopian vision. And, and he said, Rick, we're living in a bad science fiction <laughs> novel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the case. Yeah, we got all the bad stuff or a lot of the bad stuff from science fiction, not so much of the good. <laughs> well, there, you do feel like sometimes, you know, uh, writers have been, you know, warning people about the you know all the possible implications of our decisions for you know decades right some of the great works of literature are all about warnings but you do feel like there's a certain section of the population that reads dystopian literature and is like oh that sounds great we should do that you know i was i was noticing i i don't know if you uh, ever read the stephen king he was writing under richard bachman but um the running man mm -hmm. you know which was made in the arnold schwarzenegger movie and that that book is set from 2017 to 2019 and you feel like oh, i mean it was written i think in the um early 80s. But, you know, when I realized that that book was set literally right now, you know, you feel like did some like it feels like some people in our, you, you know, read that book and like, oh, we should do this. And we're right on schedule. Um, the uh, you know, it's like uh, I think Stephen King was warning us, not actually encouraging us. But um, yeah, I mean, that is obviously a, a strain. And, and I like the idea um, just for me as a storyteller of looking around at the present day through fresh eyes and saying, no, all these sort of dystopian futures that you imagine with where class has been stratified and teenagers, you know, and they're, when they're not distracted by their love triangles are the only ones who can save us. Um, you know, these sort of class stratified, you know, new world order dystopias that we imagine in the far flung future for somebody from another era uh, would see our world as dystopia. And getting a chance to kind of look at our world through that perspective was a lot of fun. But like you said, fundamentally, this is about the story of a very sort of tight-knit group of people. It's about a family. It's about a, a romantic relationship, which has its own, uh, you know, <laughs> ups and downs. Um, you know, I, uh, like the main character, I lost my mom uh, fairly suddenly. Uh, I was 26. He, he He's 32 uh, when it happened. And... Um, you know, on a fundamental level, I always, despite the fact that there's time machines and flying cars and alternate realities and all, all this sort of stuff, I really thought about this as a story about somebody who loses his mom and kind of goes through a difficult period uh, following that, where a lot of the decisions he's making are, um, he's become untethered by his grief. You know, what he didn't have a great relationship with his parents. Uh, he had a very 
you know, contorted relationship with his parents, both his father and his mother, for different reasons. And when he loses her, you know, he loses her at a time when he hasn't figured things out. I mean, some of us, you're, maybe we're lucky we have figured uh, things out in our life. But, you know, at 32, Tom hasn't, despite all the op- opportunities available to him in this fantastical version of the world, he's still kind of trying to find his place. He feels like a very ordinary person in an extraordinary world. And his sense of responsibility, you know, he, in a world where everything is taken care of for you by automation and virtualization, literally robot maids will clean up after you. He hasn't had to learn to take responsibility for his actions. And when he loses his mother, he goes through this period where he's making a lot of bad decisions, which I felt were informed by that sense of, um, that gravitational loss. You know, there's only so many people in your life who are going to love you unconditionally. And when you lose one, it throws you for a loop. Now, at the same time, this isn't like a super depressing story about grappling with the loss of a mother. It's obviously there's a lot of plot twists. There's a lot of comic observations. I, I think the book is quite funny. I think it moves pretty pretty well. But I always thought of it fundamentally as a story about somebody who, in, in the wake of losing a loved one, has to rethink his priorities, has to rethink the kind of life he's living, and essentially grows up. Uh, I would agree, but I would also agree too. I think this is one of the funniest and most uh, page turning books I've read in a long time. And what kept me, one of the things that kept me uh, turning the pages was just to find out what new kind of twist you'd come with (laughs) on on all these old, you know, classics. Uh, There are so many wonderful variations on time travel in this book. In particular, I don't want to give away any spoilers, and so let's we'll leave that out. But I will say that readers will find things in this book I don't think I've ever seen in any other book that involves time travel. Did you have? Are there examples that are anything like this? Well, I mean, thank you so much for saying that. I mean, that that means a lot to me. And no, my, my feeling was if somebody else has done it before, why? write it again you know i work in in i've worked in movies for a long time and there are some amazing groundbreaking films but look we all know the reality is a lot of stuff you just see the same thing over and over again kind of like the same skeleton kind of dressed up in new clothes and uh sorry that was a really creepy metaphor i'm not sure why i I used that one but um but uh i wanted to do something that i hadn't seen before i mean that was really the fundamental thing is i had this idea for a story and i one of the problems as a screenwriter, and I mean, I'm just being frank here, is what it, there's a certain pressure, like you, you can introduce ideas early on in a, in a movie, and then you kind of, there's, typically speaking, they want you to just sort of like, okay, here's a few ideas, and then the story is going to take those ideas you introduced in the beginning, and we're going to run through the sort of narrative, dramatic, or comic implications of them. I, with a book, I wanted to write a story where I was constantly introducing new ideas. You know, my I felt like my job as a writer is to be one step ahead of the reader, but constantly pulling them along, you know, writing it in such a way that you want to keep turning the pages and to keep surprising you. Now, sometimes those surprises are going to be like a totally unexpected plot twist or some character secret that's revealed, which changes your understanding of who that person is. Sometimes it's going to be, uh, you know, a comic observation. It's like, you know, if, if you laugh out loud, that's a great surprise too. Sometimes it's going to be an unexpectedly you know, tender or emotional moment where you're, you were kind of sailing along, turning the pages, and suddenly something hits you uh, much 
and it's much more moving than you expected. That's also part of my job as a writer is, to, is not just to surprise you in the same way. And part of it is, is including these big ideas. If you've read, if you love time travel stories, I, I love them too. Um, but I think you're going to get a time travel story you haven't seen before. Uh, and not just one. I, I like to kind of keep twisting and turning and finding new facets. To me, that's part of the fun of writing a book is that I can keep throwing interesting new ideas. And in fact, because of the structure of the book, I can even introduce new versions of the same characters, uh, which hopefully both surprise you like, oh, this is the same person and they're, they're acting in a completely different way because they're in a different timeline. But also, hopefully, cumulatively reveals things to you about the people you already thought you knew. Oh, this is a part of this character that I didn't even think was going to be part of them. And now that I'm seeing it, it makes me think about their behavior in the first half of the book totally differently. That's the kind of thing that for me makes a book worth worth reading when I find a book like that. And for me, it was definitely the kind of book I wanted to write. Uh, well, I think you accomplished that uh, quite finely. And uh, one of the things I think that was great about this book was for all the page turning excitement, the hilarity and the wonderful emotion, you also managed a, a many, many great sentences on the sentence level, reading this book sentence by sentence. This is really a fun book to read. I mean, A, it's very funny. And uh, I'm going to just read a piece that I to give readers an idea of what this is like. And this is a, a single sentence. The gut writer engine itself is quite compact, but the venting shafts and thick clusters of coolant tubes fill up the space, ready to gear down the device if it malfunctions and safely release any accumulated energies. So the engine doesn't erupt in, for example, a fury of global destruction. <laughs> I think you, 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 you rock on this. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, as a writer... Um particularly a screenwriter moving into uh, novel writing. I, you know, I took every, I felt like every sentence I took seriously, the, the way a, a director would take every shot of the movie seriously. That's, these are my shots, right? Is the sentences. And so I really think about every single word, you know, I mean, the book is written in a very deliberately casual style. There is a lot of sort of sarcastic or snarky uh, asides that the, that the protagonist makes as he's, as he's narrating. And because I wanted it to feel like um, fundamentally, I want the book to feel like you're sitting down for a drink with like a friend, maybe a new friend, and they're going to tell you this wild story of how they got here. And it's going to be full of all kinds. It's going to be the best anecdote you've heard in years. You know, that's what I wanted. But I wanted there to be a deliberately casual kind of like um, like like a friend narrating their their story to you. Um, and so part of that is that thing is, is, you know, they should be funny and charming and interesting. And even when they make, even when my protagonist, Tom, makes terrible decisions, uh, ideally you still them. connect with him. You, you love him and you wish he would do better. And so when he does do better later on in the book, there is a sense of like, you know, your friend is, he's, he's learning, you know, he's learning from his mistakes. He's actually <laughs> growing. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, the sentences are, are, are everything, you know, because that is, that's the experience that the reader has is these words in this order. Order, and I take that very, very seriously. Um, I, I, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be like me taking it seriously should still be fun and entertaining and enjoyable and funny for the reader. But my job is to make sure every word is exactly where it needs to be. I I think that you, you meant that. And also, too, this is a book that actually makes it's the first book where you visually demonstrate um, one of my favorite William Gibson quotes which is that the future has arrived. It's just not distributed evenly. <laughs> That's a great quote. <laughs> so you, that, you, didn't, you weren't familiar with it then? Uh, I, I, 
I have heard it before. No, no, I have heard it before. Yeah, but it's a great quote. Oh, okay. Because I, I would say that there's there's a scene in here, again, won't tell anybody anything, but perfect. Absolutely yeah. perfect. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up William Gibson because – so I grew up in Vancouver. Uh, in British Columbia, mm-hmm. where in Canada, where William Gibson, he's not from there originally, but that's where he lives. And when I was growing up, I mean, uh, you know, I was interested in, in writing, but it does feel very, very far away. Like, how do you go from wanting to write to like actually doing it as a career, let alone even having something published and, and in bookstores? But there was two writers who became quite prominent when I was young and who you, who you could actually see around town, uh, like at a bookstore or an art gallery or, or just walking down the street. And one of them was William Gibson and the other one was Douglas Copeland. Um, and so, and it's, it's, it's funny to me now because I certainly wouldn't have thought about it when I was writing the book, but that, I mean, if you take William Gibson on one side and Douglas Copeland on the other, you kind of, my book would be basically like right in the middle. Uh, so even without intending to it, the, the, the sort of inspiration and influence of these two writers who I don't know, I've never met either of them. Um, the, or sorry, that's not true. I did meet Douglas Copeland once, uh, very briefly, but anyways, I don't know them at all. But uh, the idea that these two people, they sort of represented to me like, oh, these are these are actual living human beings, writers whose work I really like and who, you know, I've read, I think, almost everything by both of those writers. But they were just regular people who lived in my city and you could see walking around town. It made it more tangible, even though I knew it wasn't going to be easy to become a professional writer, screenwriter, novelist, either one. Um, it made it slightly more tangible, you know? And so the influence of those two writers on me, putting aside their work and their tone and their interests as writers, just their the fact that they existed and were like these real people in my community who um, who also did this thing that I had dreamed of doing uh, was, was a big deal to me. Uh, I think the, the characters you've created in this book are really uh, fascinating and they draw you in. Uh, at the, in. At the center is Tom Barron, but yeah, just not just one Tom Barron, and so you have a, almost a, a a Jekyll and Hyde happening here. <laughs> uh, yeah, Robert Louis Stevenson and H.G. Uh, Wells uh, in in the mix master. Yeah, uh, that's uh, yeah, that's those are great comparisons. Um, yeah, well, I wanted to explore the idea in a couple different ways that you know we imagine, and I think this is a very natural human thing. We look back on our lives, we think of decisions we've made, and we think, oh, if I'd only done something different. Sometimes it's not even our decision. Sometimes like something happens, and, it's, and, and you know whether it's some, something somebody around you did or some sweep of history in your life has changed because of that. Um, and you think, if I could just go back and change that, make a different decision, my life would be different. But we imagine that we would be the same person, just in a different life. Like We don't think of ourselves on a personality level that we would turn out to be different in this other world where we made a different decision. But of course, the reality of just human psychology is like what we think of as our personality. Yes, there are some essential core things, but then a lot of it is the accumulation of our experiences. Some of those experiences are our personal ones, and some of them are the things that happened before we even were born, our, the choices our parents made, the, the lives they lived, what city we grew up in, what, our, what jobs we had, what economic situation we, were, we grew up in or class we grew up in. All of those things profoundly affect our personal psychology. So I love the idea of here's this character who finds himself thrust into an alternate reality where everything in the world is different, but why would he be the same? He's not the same. He's a different person. The elements of his personality that never flourished in his timeline, what he thinks of as the real world, 
come to the fore. He makes very different life decisions. He has a different personality. Some things are the same. And the other thing I thought was interesting is we sort of assume it would be the good parts of our personality that would be the same. But in Tom's case, that's not that's not that's not the way it plays out. In fact, the worst parts of his personality are the ones that actually were uh, had become accentuated in this other version of the world. So he's confronted with an with a version of himself that's actually much worse. And even though superficially his life has improved. You know, he's actually more successful in our version of the world. He's more respected. He sort of found his place in a way that he didn't. But he's a much worse person. And so that idea of him having to weigh personal achievement versus um, the kind of versus like the kind of person he is, the way he treats the people around him. Uh, I thought that that was a, a fun way to exp to make um, these ideas of alternate realities, alternate timelines, different choices, much more just stark and personal. Why should you get to be the only constant? Um, you know, why should you? Why should you as, as the you know why should you be able to escape the radical changes that have happened to society? Of course you wouldn't. And so that idea that and as the story progresses, Tom realizes that more than anything, in fact, he is the threat to the people he loves. Um, that becomes, is one of the great things. He's not just a hero. He, in many ways, is the uh, ultimate villain. Yeah, he's both. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, that's part of a story that I want I, – I imagine the story is starting very, very big, and as it goes along, it's sort of like a reverse onion. We keep um, – you know, we, we keep adding – kind of peeling down to the core, to the core, to the core, till you know, this is fundamentally a story about a man who's essentially has to, has to save the world and, and fix this – you know, terrible, you know, schism he's caused in the space-time continuum. But to do so, he has to grapple with um, the worst parts of himself and to figure out what kind of person he wants to be. And so the idea of making it in like both sort of as, as epic in scope as possible and also as intimate and personal and psychological as possible was a real, um, it was really appealing to me as, as a writer. You also speak to something I find very interesting, which is the import of failing. I think that failure is highly underrated in our world as a yeah. life experience and as a means to success. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I, I um, you know, that's part of Tom's story too. I mean, his idea of accomplishment, his idea of success, it's a, it's 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 sort of like from the outside in. It's peering through the window and seeing success inside the building and not knowing how you know, like because you haven't actually tried, not understanding that. For for most people, you spend most of your life failing. Even in success, um, you know, failure is actually the constant of your life because you're trying something, and most of the time it's not working. Anytime you're pushing yourself to do anything new, you're going to be failing most of the time. Some, you know, if somebody picks up my book and loves it, obviously I'm uh, that's that means the world to me. There's there's no better feeling as a writer than somebody connecting with your work. At the same time, you know, the published version of the book is the final version. It doesn't reflect the months and years of efforts to, to get it to this place. Um, you know, it would be lovely to pretend like what you read is my first draft, but I, it wasn't. And in fact, that awareness that um, every amazing book that you adore, whether or, or not just book, movie, television show, symphony, painting, everything, it's not the first draft. It's the result of um, many, many revisions and efforts and labors to get it to be the best possible version of itself. And so Tom's um, 
learning about the value of failure and how much of life, even the most successful, the life that appears so successful is actually spent wallowing in failure to get to that place of success is so important for him because, and I think that that's something that really paralyzes a lot of young writers. You know, you have all these uh, authors whose work you revere, but it just seems like, how am I ever going to get there when my work, uh, you know, it just doesn't feel like anything like that, that, you know, I know what it's supposed to feel like in my mind, but when I write it on the page, it just doesn't, it's not as good as the stuff that I love. But it's that realization that the, the books that you love that inspired you to be a writer, well, you know, when that writer started, their work kind of sucked too. They just worked at it. They, they stuck with it. They embraced the failure and they used it not to be discouraged or paralyzed, but they used it as fuel, you know, like um, Lionel's invention of unlimited clean energy. In fact, if you can find a way to make failure your fuel, it is the unlimited energy energy resource that will propel you to all kinds of creative endeavors. We as a nation are well on our way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, there is that other aspect of things where you write about stuff, uh, you know, that you see kind of percolating in the culture, but the way that, you know, obviously uh, politics has kind of swerved in the last few months, it, it, it both isn't surprising to me. And at the same time, because, because it's things that I was writing about. And at the same time, when it actually happens in real world, rather than, rather than fiction, it can be disorienting. Like Tom, some days I feel like I've woken up in the wrong version of reality. I think a lot of us feel that way. And lately, that's actually a theme in the book. At one point, uh, Tom, yeah. Tom says, we need new futures. And I think that's, that's, right. that's an important aspect of the science fiction genre is to offer us vi new visions of the future. Well, that's what science fiction does so well. I mean, I loved science fiction when I was growing up. I mean, as I've gotten older, I read all genres. I, I in fact, almost intentionally keep it keep it shuffled. Like I jump from genre to genre because I like to keep um, wow, being challenged. Too. Doing... <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I, I'll always have a soft spot for science fiction because it's the, it's, it's that ability to use some fantastical idea, insight, metaphor to explore the human condition, not just where we come from, but where we're going. So I, I'm always going to love science fiction for that opportunity to just see the world through fresh eyes. That's what sci-fi does so well. At the same time, that's what, for example, like a, a writer who is coming from another culture or perceiving things from, you know, in a very, very different, different way, they do that same thing for you as well. You know, sometimes when you're reading a book and I, 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 that feeling you get sometimes, you're like, I don't know if this book is for me. Like, I don't really get the author's point of view. Their emotional frequencies just feels really off of mine. I, I'm not sure I get it. But, and whenever I have that feeling, I, I actually think to myself, no, that's it's good that I'm reading this, actually. Because if you only read things that already repeat the truths you think you know, then you don't ever grow and change as, as a person. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about literature is to be challenged, is to read something that comes from another point of view that sees the world differently than you, where the decisions don't necessarily make sense because they're not the decisions you would make. That's how you see the world in a more expansive way. I absolutely, I, I myself, I try to make a point of going from exact, from nonfiction to fiction, to literary fiction, to science fiction, to fantasy. And I think that that kind of rotation gives your reading a much more richer, um, uh, feel this book one of the things I, that interests me is that for a book that casts the present as a dystopia uh and a book that comes up with a really even more fearsome something that to make the, the hunger games look like happy time <laughs> uh 
this book is overall has a very optimistic edge. This is like the kind of the science fiction almost of the 1950s or of Kurt Vonnegut's time when, you know, science fiction was saying, yes, we can do it. But this is your optimism, I think, is tempered, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it as um, like encouraging but realistic. You know, <laughs> I, I would say that the book has an optimistic core. Um, at the same time, what I tried to do for my protagonist and also for the reader is to say, you have to approach your conflicts, your obstacles, your challenges with eyes wide open, you know, you have to like, in fact, you have to recognize the complexity of these problems. Sometimes those problems are giant, you know, geopolitical problems. Uh, sometimes those problems are just like a, are, are very personal, emotional, psychological problems, but you have to see them as complex, as nuanced, as gray. If you imagine them in black and whites with only a yes, no answer, you aren't ever going to solve them. Um, but if you, but if you can engage with the complexity, then you have a real opportunity to face the challenges head on. Now, some of those challenges, as I said, might be personal, they might be romantic, they might be familial, familial or they might be technological, cultural, social, civilizational, you know, but um, pretending like the biggest issues that have bedeviled us for generations uh, can be solved, uh, you know, very easily because they're so obvious and black and white isn't going to get us anywhere other than uh, other than delusion, right? So I would say the book is essentially, opt you know, the book is optimistic because I believe in human ingenuity. I mean, every problem we've solved has been become because of human ingenuity. Some of those so-called solutions have caused other problems. Uh, but every, you know, but, you know, human, and I also think human ingenuity got us into this mess. And it's also the only thing that's going to get us out of this mess. But the most ingenious solutions to the most befuddling problems are inevitably ones that confront the complexity of life, you know? And so, yeah, I would say that the realism is the awareness of the nuance, subtlety, and complexity of everyday existence. But the optimism is the sense that we, like, we've actually, despite the fact that my protagonist considers our world to be to a total dystopia, like, we have actually addressed all kinds of pretty, uh, you know, we, we've addressed challenges that have afflicted the human race for not just generations, but centuries, you know, millennia. And we have actually come quite far. It doesn't mean that we've come as far as we'd hoped we would. It doesn't mean that we've uh, resolved everything. We obviously haven't. And sometimes for every step we take forward, it feels like we take two steps back. That, unfortunately, is the human condition. We're, like Tom, our own worst enemy. I think that as we read this book, um, we come to realize there's a, a great point uh, in here where you write, if we can just keep going, make our technology good enough, We'll solve all the world's problems. We'll be able to clean up the mess we made and everything will be perfect. No more pollution or war and equity or blah, blah, blah. The world was not given to us to control. Now, that is a really interesting idea that, the, that we are, are not, the world is not controllable by us, just period. Yeah, I mean, so the character who you're quoting is criticizing that point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that is a big part of the sort of, um, I guess you'd say philosophical theme that runs through the book, which is that, you know, Tom comes from a version of the world where technology does appear to have solved a lot of our problems. Of course, the same technology that's, that seems to have solved a lot of our problems ends up causing the shattering of reality and Tom being stranded in the wrong version of the world. So there are unintended consequences. But, but, um, 
the character that's criticizing that point of view saying like in this version of the world like that idea that if we can just keep making our technology better everything will be solved is a it's not true it's a farce in fact it that idea is what is causing problem so many problems for us that's the pyre on which we're setting ourselves aflame um so yeah that idea we that is like now we're talking about like very fundamental like human ideology right mm-hmm. that idea that the, the planet is here as our garden you know and it and that we can do whatever we want to the planet whatever uh however we want to change it to make it more suitable for uh, human life, uh, the planet can take it. In fact, that's what it's here for. Uh, all the plants, all the animals, all the minerals, all the resources, they're only here to make our lives, human lives, more comfortable. And that is a perspective which is embedded at the deepest levels of uh, of the way that we behave. You know, um, An observation that I, I made uh uh, you know, I was asked, I was talking to a friend of mine and, and I said to him, you know, when did the agricultural revolution begin? And he's like, I, I, I don't know. You know, and I was like, you know, he's, I was like, if I said 10,000 years ago, would you, that's what he's like, yeah, like 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution began. Humans stopped hunting, hunt, being hunter gatherers and they uh, started farming and farming led to cities and, um, you know, cities led to like all, you know, all the, all of human civilization. So great. Okay. So 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution began. When did it end? He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, well, it began then. When did it end? And he, and and the answer is, it didn't end. It's never ended. We're still in the agricultural revolution. We think of it as this thing that happened, you know, ten thousand years ago to like our dist- distant ancestors. But we're still in it. We're still in the process of trying to turn the entire world into a farm, right? Every time we cut down a rainforest to create land for cows to graze or to raise or to grow soybeans, we're in this. We're still fighting the agricultural revolution. We just forgot that we're fighting it. We're like those soldiers on, you know, like I mean, it's apocryphal, but like you know, those soldiers who are like on Jap, you know, like islands in the South Pacific who don't know the Second World War is over. Um, and so, I mean, uh, why am I talking about like the agricultural revolution? We've got off on a real tangent here. But the point I was trying to, I guess I was trying to make is that we have this philosophy that everything on this planet is here for us to control. But what we, I think part of the trend towards dystopia, I think a lot of people's cynicism, their fatalism, the reason why they feel like our problems are so are insurmountable, cannot be solved, is because we're increasingly aware that there's a contradiction there. Every time, when we try to control the world, uh, the, it doesn't work as well. It's, it, why isn't it working? We, you know, I thought that was the whole idea. The world was here for us to do whatever we want with it. But then it keeps causing all of these like terrible ramifications. And it's because it's, the, it's, it's actually the philosophy that's, that's broken. You know, we, I mean, um, without kind of like skewing into some like environmental screed, until we... Until we adjust how we relate to the resources of our planet, like we're we're going to continue to make things uh, worse, you know. We're, and again, this is kind of tied into like now. Having said that, like, well, that's a very negative perspective. Like, I think of it as we have to be aware of the complexity of things if we're going to solve our problems. Pretending like, um, you know, you can just burn as much fossil fuels as you want and nothing will go wrong, like. It's just, it's a delusion, you know, until we actually can confront our problems with eyes wide open, we're actually not going to solve the problems. And so for me, it's sort of like going to a doctor and the doctor's trying to explain all the things that are wrong with you in, in, in medical terms. And you're like, you know what, that's too complicated. Why don't you just give me some antibiotics? And they're like, well, antibiotics aren't going to solve your problem. But like, well, you know what, I've heard antibiotics are good, so I'm going to take those. You know, you like, you have to actually... Um, 
yeah, you have to actually like deal with the real problem. You can't just kind of keep piling on, um, you know, the remedy, the remedy, folk remedies that essentially aren't going to solve anything. I feel like I've gone off. That was like a total uh, rant there. I, I apologize, but um, you know, these are the sort of philo philosophical underpinnings. That's why I write it as a story as opposed to like a blog post about the agricultural revolution. I find like you know, uh, you, you, when, when I start going on this stuff, like obviously I'm very passionate about it, but this is not how I write the book. The, the book is written as a narrative. Is written as a page turning kind of plot twisty story because I can explore these themes without feeling like I'm lecturing people. So I apologize to your listeners for lecturing you. No, they, they, I can, you, your voice, the voice that uh, we read in the book comes through in the voice that speaks to us. Right. <laughs> you know, yes, I guess that's true, isn't it? For me, one of the most powerful moments in this book was where Tom was realizing that in balance, between his family, the the moments he spent with his family and the rest of the world, the rest of the world can go to hell. <laughs> and I thought that that was right. like, you know, uh, a fascinating uh, piece of writing. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Well, look, I mean, the 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 fate of the world is hard to it's hard to grapple with that idea, you know? I mean, very few of us are ever going to feel like a decision we make is going to have that kind of profound consequence. Um, and in Tom's case, it does. But even in Tom's case, what really matters to him, as the story progresses, what he realizes really matters to him are the people who love him and who he loves. It's those connections um, between us, the ties that bind us, that give our life meaning and purpose. That's how we become happy. You know, hopefully... You know, people who are listening to this, they're in a good place in their life. They're satisfied. Um, you know, they feel positive about the about where they are. But lots of, but you know, it's equally likely that they're not. None of us are living this the version of the life we thought we were going to have. None of us are living the life we thought we were going to have. You know, we all we have the life we do have for better or, and for worse. But what makes all of it worthwhile is people. You know, it's the people around us. It's it's our, our family, our you know partners, our spouses, it's our children. That's what gives your life purpose. And for Tom, uh, as for most of us, at the end of the day, he is he can't turn his back on those connections. That's what that's the only reason he's going. He, that's what keeps him going. Uh, and so throwing him into a situation in the climax of the book, and we can talk about it vaguely, so I'm not giving anything away, where he really has to grapple between those two imperatives, the fate of the world and the fate of a few uh, important people, it's an impossible decision. And that, but to me, that's what's fun about it is putting a character in an impossible situation and having him have to find a way through it. One of the many uh, problems that uh, pops up in this book is the problem of discovery. And we know this uh as a fact that the telephone was discovered like seven times almost simultaneously right. and only Edison managed to be there first. And this is what something that is, I think you make this point that um, technology only matters. And I think this is a, a quote from Charles Fort. Um, steam engines only come to exist when it is steam engine time. Uh, the, steam, right. the steam engine was invented many years before it was actually reinvented by somebody else who figured out a way to use it yeah and you and i i think about that a lot i mean is there you know you think about whatever 
issues are afflicting us uh, these days, whether it's just like a, something very personal sort of thing in your own life or on, on a group's grander level, maybe somebody has already <laughs> solved that problem. You know, it's just they didn't have the marketing wherewithal, the industry support, the political savvy, the economic you know, um, infrastructure to get it out in the world. I read a book uh, several years ago, actually, by a journalist who's a friend of mine. We went to university together named Chris Turner called The Geography of Hope. And um, it was about him going, he had just had a kid. And so, and he was thinking about the world that, that she was going to grow up in. And he goes around kind of essentially like trying to research like all of human humanity's problems and like, how are we going to solve them? And what he found actually, in, interestingly, in this, in his travels around the world was, most of what we think of as um, the big problems we're facing, like the technology already exists to solve that problem. What's li the limitations are uh, infrastructure, political will, and just the, the dollars and cents, like how expensive they are to implement on, the, on a wide enough level, you know? But actually, like the, most of the technology to solve all the things we think are in unsolvable already exists. Uh, and but I'm constantly thinking about like what are the things that are out there that just never got that just never made it and you have to hope that they'll get that um, the way that sort of the collective unconscious works is that that you know people keep discovering the same things over and over again and so that that hopefully no idea is lost particularly one that could could really change things. Science fiction is one of the the really great strengths of science fiction is that you can write a page turning hilarious novel that is just uh, intellectually frothy and fun and, and has some great characters. But you also can, by putting somebody into a science fiction world, they can look back at our world and say, wow, that's kind of, you have, you get a new perspective on things. It, it allows you to externalize. I guess it's the old Rod Serling quote, I can make a Martian say things I could never make a Republican say. Yeah. <laughs> That's, now that quote i haven't heard before that's a good one yeah uh yeah absolutely i mean that's to me it's always the chance to like i mean what i you know what authors like vonnegut um gave me as a as like you know an adolescent um was looking at things i took for granted through fresh eyes you know and that's what my protagonist is doing he's looking at things around him through fresh eyes the things that he takes for granted whether they're the technological solutions to sort of eternal human problems or the people in his life that he's taken for granted and he has to see everything through fresh eyes um and i like to do that for the reader as well i love you know some of the funnest stuff in the book to write is to kind of write about things that we just think of as everyday problems, just everyday life, not even problems, just sort of like the annoyances of just modern life and, and really kind of like unpack them from the perspective of somebody who didn't grow up with them, how weird they would seem, you know, how, like, how did we get to the, how did that become a normal part of everyday life? Uh, and so that stuff is fun to write. I mean, you know, too much of it, it becomes a stand-up comedy routine, but with, but with the right frame and the right kind of tone, it can be very, very funny, but also hopefully you give the reader that feeling of they walk around uh, seeing everything slightly differently. The way you do, you know, I think about a novel, it's like, you know, when you go on vacation to a new city and you walk around and suddenly you, your senses are so open in a way they just aren't when you're walking around your own neighborhood or commuting to work. You know, you make the same commute to work over and over again. You don't see the world around you anymore because you, you know, that's just how your brain works. Once you've done it five, 10, 50, a hundred times, you don't, you're not, you're sent, you know, you're not looking for new experiences, but when you're traveling, you arrive in a new city and you, you're looking at everything. You're soaking it all in. That's to me what literature can do. It opens up your senses to sort of see, um, the world around you and the and the world inside your own mind with fresh eyes. 
I, you know, um, this is such a, a really beautiful book. Are, are you working on another one? I am, yeah. I mean, the two things I'm working on right now. So I, we did did sell the movie rights to the book, and so I'm in the process of working on uh, the script oh, for Paramount. Uh, yeah, and so that's been a lot of fun. Um, Do you have a producer kind of like director? Re- yeah, I mean, Amy Pascal uh, is producing the movie through uh, Pascal Pictures, her company, and then Paramount is the is the studio. And so I'm just working on the script right now. The other thing I'm doing is I'm about halfway through a new novel. Um, and uh which has been going well um and it is not a sequel or anything like that to all our wrong todays i want i wanted all our wrong todays to just be its own self-contained story beginning middle and an end and when it ends it's you know it's i i i wanted to write a book that where you end up is so far from where you thought you'd be when you started like i wanted to write a very unexpected story um where you just keep going to places you didn't know you were going to get to and so i you know i like to write a book where if you were to read the last page uh before you read the first page you you would never imagine that you, that's where you ended up uh at the same time i i i want people who like all our wrong todays to kind of connect to this new book so tonally thematically has a lot in common uh the new book has a lot in common with my first one but in terms of characters plot storyline it's a totally different story so yeah i'm about uh halfway half between halfway and two-thirds of the way through it now you you've written movies what movies have you written um the most recent one i did was uh, i wrote a romantic comedy called what if uh starred daniel radcliffe uh zoe kazan and adam driver uh so that was out in theaters in 2014 and then, wow. in, you know, home video streaming, all that stuff in 2015. Before that, I had written a movie, I wrote a movie called The Samaritan with uh, Samuel Jackson and Ruth Negga and Tom Wilkinson, which was out in 2012. And I have a couple, I've been working uh, for the studios in, in LA and um, have a couple other things that are kind of working their way, working their way through the system. Movies is, a, it's funny to me because um, in my experience, movies actually take longer than books, which I never would have thought when I was starting, because a book is so much longer, uh, and there's so much more care taken in the words and the storytelling. Um, but at the same time, uh, because it's just the writer and the and the words, um, you don't go through the all the layers. You know, you don't have the producer, the studio, the director, the crew, the cast, the financing, the distribution, the marketing, all that sort of stuff, which accumulates and, and can make um, even even the simplest movie take a long time. So. Uh, uh, yeah, I have a couple other movies that will hopefully be kind of making their way through the system over the next few years. The new book by Elon Musk I is All Are Wrong Todays. Thank you for joining me, Elon. Rick, thank you very much. It was a really interesting uh, and fun conversation. I'm glad we were able to do this. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.